The following is a message of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ryan Musser, and I am just a member here at the church. I was a pastor and youth minister for about 15 years, and I'm currently an attorney in Dallas and do real estate law, but... My wife and I joined the church here about five years ago, and we have just loved every minute of being here, and so we had uh, just this great opportunity where we get to come up here and serve. She's serving as a deacon, and every now and then I get to preach, and we are just so blessed to serve alongside of you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. While you're doing that, I want to say welcome to everyone who's in Worship East and everyone who is joining us in the sanctuary. We are so excited to have each and every one of you today. Those of you who are watching this because maybe you're sick or traveling, just couldn't make it in today, and you're watching on YouTube, we are so thankful to have you as well worshiping with us. Today, um, we're continuing a series we started last week called After Easter. And there's this period of time after Easter where Jesus is still doing stuff. If you're you're like me, I did not grow up in the church, but if you're like me, um, what happens typically in my life now is that we kind of gear up for Easter. We have all these things and there's tons of events and family over and we dress up and, and sing and it's wonderful. And we have Easter egg hunts and all kinds of things. And then after Easter, we just kind of go on with things. Maybe we were like, okay, we did some church stuff. We've got other things going on in our lives and we just kind of move on. And it was very much not that way for the early church. When Easter happened, they didn't go, oh man, Sunday was fantastic. So this Thursday, I'm thinking for dinner, some tilapia, that'd be nice. That's not how things went for them. It was more of a dramatic event than you might you know, normally think than the way we typically do things. We read last week about the road to Emmaus, and today we're another one of these times where Jesus appears to his disciples. We, we actually just had part of the verse read by Elijah, and so we have this scene that's been set up for us where Peter and the other disciples are fishing. Peter's a fisherman, and he's gone back and he's fishing, and they didn't catch anything, and Jesus is sitting on the shore, and he calls out, and they don't know it's Jesus yet, and he says, Hey, uh, throw your nets on the other side. It seems like you haven't got anything. Throw your nets on the other side, and you're going to catch some fish. And sure enough, they do. And the disciple that Jesus loved said, that's the Lord. And Peter, being Peter, jumps right in the water and starts swimming the hundred or so yards to shore. And that's where we pick up our story in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Now this is the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. Now, just before this, we have the disciples out and they're, they're fishing. But before that, we have this period of time where Jesus, after the resurrection, is appearing and disappearing. And I have lovingly called it the Where's Waldo game with Jesus because he is there and then he is gone. Doesn't matter if you're in a locked room. Doesn't matter if you think you're finally alone. No, no, no. Jesus might just show up. And he's there in the flesh and you can touch him and see him and he's real and he eats and he's there with them. But he's appearing and disappearing. He's trying to get them ready in this transition period after Easter between the resurrection and the ascension to understand a very fundamental thing. I am with you always. I am with you. The same spirit that was in me is going to be with you. God is going to be with you even when you don't see me. They've been used to walking and talking with him for three years. They've been following him in the flesh and they're used to him being in one location and being there with him and he's not going to be that way anymore and he's trying to get them ready for what comes next. And we have Peter in this boat fishing. Peter wanted to go out fishing. The other disciples kind of came along with him. Peter's name isn't Peter. Peter's name's Simon. Jesus called him Peter, Petros, the rock. He has this statement, this amazing moment, this high moment in Peter's life where Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, Peter being named the rock is also the rock there, but this rock that he's building his church on is this faith statement. You are the Christ, Messiah, the son of the living God. That's the foundation. And Jesus is in a bit of a construction project right now. He is actually building a church and this is going to be the foundation of it. Now we spoke last week as well about the difference between belief and faith. This is a faith statement, not a belief statement. A belief is something you can cognitively assent to. To believe something is to say, that thing is true. It doesn't have to change anything about you. There is one electron and a hydrogen atom. Okay. But a faith is something that we live out. To faith, pisteos in Greek, every time you read believe, that's not what it says. It says we faith in Jesus. A faith is something that we do something with. To faith, in Greek, is to believe and to live it out. To act on what we say we believe. A person is faithful when there's somebody who does what they say they're going to do. Another way to translate faith is to trust. Because it involves some work. You are the Christ, 
son of the living God is a faith statement. It's not enough to be a belief. It has to be something that changes the actions of the person. That's the foundation for the church here. And Jesus is building this church and it's having some foundation problems. Jesus sees the disciples, but I may be so bold as to say that this passage really isn't about them. There are a lot of people there on the shore and they are not the ones that Jesus is really here to see in that moment. Jesus has constructed this situation for Peter. Jesus sees Peter from afar and he sees the situation. Peter, back to fishing. Is that a failure? Is it not? I don't know. But if I were Peter and I had just gone through the situation I had gone through and I had betrayed Jesus by denying him, I might be thinking perhaps this is a good time for me to slide out the back door. I didn't quite live up to what I was supposed to. And Peter's back to his job, what he knew before Jesus called him to follow me, before he left his nets. He's back to fishing. He was definitely defeated on that night when he was questioned if he knew Jesus. Jesus had prayed specifically for Peter in Luke chapter 22 that his faith, his belief lived out, would not fail. But Jesus also told him it was going to. And it did. And now, perhaps Peter has lost a step. Peter's very bold, he's very brash. He jumped out of the boat to go see Jesus. But could it be that Peter in this moment has been dealing with the fact that maybe he should keep his mouth shut and move on. Maybe he's not really who he thought he was. Maybe he's not really fit to be a disciple anymore. I'm originally from Crawford, Texas. Now, when I say Crawford, Texas, that conjures up images for you. It was not always that way. My hometown has 600 people in it. I promise you, if you sneeze while going through, you will miss the whole thing. But when I was growing up, people would say, Crawford, I don't know where that is. Can you tell me? And I'd say, oh, it's near Waco. And people would go, oh, Waco, the Branch Davidians. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, Waco, thanks. I appreciate it. And so then I got uh, into my later years of high school, and the guy who was running for president moved to town and then won. And so now the president, George Bush, lived in my town of 600 people, and that changed the conversations. When I said I was from Crawford, they go, oh, Crawford, saw it on C-SPAN, great. And I had to deal with that reality that, oh, everyone knows my hometown, or they think they do, and then somebody would go, is there anything near Crawford? I was like, well, Waco's near Crawford. And it became where Waco was near Crawford. And that was kind of cool for a while. But then time passed on. We got another president and another president. And there came a point in time where I said, I'm from Waco. And someone went, well, where's that? And I said, it's near Waco. I'm from Crawford. It's near Waco. And now they didn't bring up the Branch Davidians. You know what they did bring up? Any ideas? Ah, uh, yeah, you got it. Chip and Joanna, it's fixer-upper. That's exactly right. Now there are people, I, I was once on a mission trip in Waco while working as a youth minister, and I met a family who lived in, I think, Ohio, who were taking their spring break to go to Waco, Texas, and I about lost my mind. <laughs> Guys, there are places that I would want to visit in the world, and I love where I'm from, but no. 
Nonetheless, Chip and Joanna Gaines have completely and totally taken over and revitalized that situation. We go at a above 30% poverty rate when I was there. And they have taken areas that were impoverished and needed love and they have raised property values for everyone around. They have done this thing because they could find these homes and they see in those homes something that no one else does and they take them and they make them amazing. I, I would take any one of those homes they've made. While we were watching that show, I don't really like those kind of shows, but Rachel, my wife, loves them. And she has about 25 on the DVR, just different kinds. But Fixer Upper, I could get behind because I'm from there. So like occasionally, I was like, I know that house or whatever's going on. It was just kind of cool. And, and I would be watching it, and I would be amazed at what they see. And so we were going to buy our first home while living down in Sugarland, Texas. We'd been married over five years. We were ready to be out of apartments, out of duplexes, finally get a home. And so we were going through, and our realtor, who was a friend of ours, said, Now, look, we're going to look at a lot of homes. And honestly, you're going to walk in, and in about 60 seconds to two minutes, you're going to know yes or no. And you know what? That's exactly right. She said, it's going to be a thing. We're going to walk into one of them. And I don't know if it's the smell or if it's the layout or the feel or what it is, but you're going to know this is home. And it, it went exactly that way. We went into a lot of homes and we saw a lot of very questionable ideas. I don't know why you want an elevated bathtub with steps up to it and the entire bathroom carpeted, but I will pray for you if that's you. There should not be tile going up to the ceiling in anyone's bedroom. I don't understand. I don't want to know. Just know we're not doing that. That's weird. If your washer is on the inside of the house, please put the dryer there as well. There are just things that bothered us, and we're like, no, that's not it. We, this, is a, this is a lost cause. Let's move on. But when we walked in the right house, we just knew this was the place. We put down an offer and got it that day. We were... We were insisting we must have this one. Let's, let's offer just a little above the list. Let's knock this down. It's day one. They've already got five offers. Let's beat all of them. We knew it was home. That's a little bit of what's going on in this passage. Just a little bit. N.T. Wright, who's a great theologian, looks at this passage and the one where Peter denies Jesus, and he sees something in common. It's very interesting. He says that in the Greek, it doesn't say that Peter and Jesus were sitting around a fire. It calls out what kind. It's a charcoal fire. That wouldn't mean much to you and me. It would be kind of weird that they spent time and money writing the word charcoal over and over again every time they translate this. Why not just drop that off? It's not a big deal. Except it also makes a big deal of what kind of fire it is in one other location. On the night that Peter denied Jesus, he went to warm himself right outside where Jesus was being tried. Around a charcoal fire. And Peter comes up and he sees the Lord. He sees his friend. He sees his teacher. He sees him sitting around a charcoal fire. There's no way that didn't bring up that painful memory of what happened not very long ago. Where three times he was asked, don't you know Jesus? No, I don't know the man. Are you sure? I'm, I'm pretty sure from your accent you must know. And the third time swearing, I never knew him. 
on Fixer Upper, they have this thing where they pick three houses normally and they tell the couple, hey, you can, you can have any one of these you want. We'll, you, know, you buy it for a lower price. We'll fix it up. It'll be worth more. You'll have equity. I give them three choices. And then once the couple picks, they have my favorite part of the show, Demo Day. This is the only thing that happens on that show that I could ever do. I am not going to be able to do anything else, but Demo Day I could handle. Demo Day is about breaking stuff. It's not about building it back up right there. They pull out anything that is broken and unusable. They leave it naked and bare and exposed. They pull out the floors. They pull out the walls. There's nothing left hidden. The cabinetries and fixtures are gone. If they're going to find a problem with the house, if there is something they didn't know when they were buying it, something that wasn't revealed in the inspection, it's going to be brought out on demo day. The number of times you'll see them pull this out and then they go, hey guys, we didn't realize that this pipe ran over there and for some reason it wrapped around the house instead of going straight down. We got to fix that. On demo days where you see what's really there, the charcoal fire with Jesus is demo day. Peter swims up before the other disciples. He jumps out of the boat so he can get there. He's so excited to see Jesus. And when he gets there, I want you to look at your Bibles about all the words he says. Go ahead. Look at that conversation that he has. Nothing. He didn't say a word. He gets there and sees Jesus around this fire. And he has nothing to say. And for Peter, that's a big deal. And then Jesus says, well, someone could go get the fish. And Peter's the first one to volunteer to get out of there. Let me go do a task, do something. I'll be quiet in the back. I'll go grab something. So he goes and gets the fish. This moment is tearing him down. And then it gets combined with these questions from Jesus, as if Jesus sitting there in front of this fire that he just so happens to have built wasn't bad enough, Jesus starts to ask just Peter a few questions. And it starts off like this. Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? When I read that, it's... Odd to me because I'm like, well, who's the these? We need to clarify our antecedent here, Jesus. But Peter understood the situation. Peter had said that even if everyone else fell away, even if all the other disciples, if everyone else denied him, that he never would. In Matthew 26, 33, that's exactly what he says. Jesus is asking him, Peter, you still saying you love me more than these other guys? Is that still your claim? Peter was questioned three times. Not everyone was. Peter had an opportunity to stand up and say, that's my teacher, that's my rabbi, that's my friend. Peter didn't. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. Jesus asks him two more times. Do you love me? Let's quit comparing to other people. Do you love me, period, at all? Actions, not words, are what love is about. 
Expressions of love are about actions. Words by themselves are too empty. Much like belief is not enough. Just saying that a thing is true is not what we're called to. We have to put feet to that belief. Love is not enough to say one thing. We have to act love out. People have made a big deal about the fact that different words for love are used in this passage. But the early commentators, people who are way familiar, more familiar with Greek than you and I are, they didn't because all through John, all these words are used. The issue here isn't about the word being used for love. It's about the actions that aren't. You love me. You left me alone in my worst and darkest moment. If we want to talk about words, let's talk about this. Jesus named him Peter, the rock. But here, he only calls him Simon. On Fixer Upper, Joanna is really good at seeing what I don't and what her guests don't. She has an eye for things in a way I never will. She tries to find the worst house in the best neighborhood, and they're pretty good at that. They're pretty good at finding a place where you want to live, but maybe not exactly there, and then they make it someplace you'd always want to be. And if you'd seen their work, you trust them. Joanna sees way past what I do. And God sees something here in Peter that something that's worth being restored. Jesus sees a broken foundation in Peter. He sees a failed disciple and someone who'd like to crawl back just to being a fisherman. He sees past it a rock that the builders rejected, a stone that they would have overlooked, maybe a lot like him. He sees something to be rebuilt. Maybe you've experienced this too. Uh, In growing up, my grandfather, my papa, was a big part of my life. And uh, he taught me to drive or helped teach me to drive. When I was 12 years old, and that seems a bit young for some of you, I'm from Crawford, Texas. We've already been over this. I lived on a ranch, and occasionally you need someone to drive the truck while you're putting out the range cubes. And if you have a 12-year-old and you think they won't crash into a tree, you might just need the help. So nonetheless, when I was 12 years old, my grandfather started teaching me to drive, and he had this old GMC truck that was just there for driving around on the ranch. And so he would take it and teach me to drive, and one day, it was just me driving, and he was sitting in the passenger seat, and we were coming back in, and he had this fence outside, and parked it by the fence, buddy, okay. I put it in reverse and start backing up, and I'm watching very carefully not to, to do anything here, and all of a sudden... Just this click sound, and the truck stopped. I wasn't moving that fast, but I knew I hit this fence, and I couldn't figure out how. I forgot that the tailgate was down. He said, buddy, that, that was the tailgate. I went back and looked, and I had cracked a board on the fence. The tailgate was dented in on his truck. I mean, it wasn't a super nice truck, but it was my papa's truck. And... I don't think the hinge was working right anymore. It it tended to stick a little now. But what was worse than all of that is, in the middle of this fence, just so happens where I hit, was this brick pillar that he had built with his own hands. They didn't have much money. And so after work, he would go out and he would fix things up. He built beautiful flower beds for my grandmother and he built these pillars and this fence out front because she wanted it. 
And he built it with his own hands. And as I looked at it, it was cracked. It had been broken by me. And as adults, that may not seem like a big deal to us. But if we've got some people in the room or teenagers or who are going through this, the idea that you're trying to learn this and do this and the person that you love and care about, you just broke their stuff because you messed up. It's a big deal. And I'll never forget, he said, yeah, so just next time when you're backing up, just you know, think about the fact that if you've got the tailgate down, you've got a little extra room, you have to think about it. Maybe put it up instead if you can, but if it's down, you just got to consider that and walked in the house. And what was more impressive is the next time, he just handed me the keys the next day. And it's like, all right, let's go. Despite my mistakes, despite the fact that I was going to make more, that man loved me unconditionally and just kept believing in me. And it meant all the world to me and made it so much easier that next time to know that I could go and if I messed up, it wasn't the end of the world. Three times he denied Jesus. Three times restored by the charcoal fire right there with Jesus. He isn't being condemned. He's being repurposed. He's not just offered a place in. It's not that Jesus says, hey, I'm going to allow you to still hang out with me when this is done. It is specifically this. I want you to lead. You feed my sheep. You shepherd them. You take care of them. He's not simply being offered a, you're good enough, you get to sit in the back of the room. He's being told to get up off the mat. Jesus died for the sins of the world, but in this moment with Peter, he's doing... A little bit more than that. He's here to heal a broken foundation and to clean up memories of a broken past and replace them instead with a meaningful future. Jesus purchased this property at a very high price. And he didn't do so because he felt bad for it. He didn't do so because no one else wanted. He did so not to let it sit and do just nothing. It wasn't pity. He sees a value in Peter. And he's taking Peter apart to build something better. Because at its core and foundation, there is something there that Jesus says, I want. Peter is valuable and meaningful. And in this new neighborhood, God's kingdom, he's going to have a prominent place. And then Jesus ends with two words. Follow me. Now, for those of you who have read the Gospels a few times, you're going to recognize that. That's how this whole thing started for Peter. Peter was just a fisherman. There are lots of people who are smart, who got drafted by the other rabbis and got to go and be a part of those things, who had the better schooling. Peter was never going to be that guy. He was just going to be a fisherman. And yet one day, this amazing rabbi that everyone's talking about comes down and says the two words that everyone knows means, I choose you from your rabbi. He said, follow me. And here, he's given him a chance again, a restored call. The difference between Peter and Judas is three days. Both betrayed Jesus. Both lost sight of what this was really about. Both turned their backs. But one of them was there for Easter, and Easter changes everything. 
Peter's first follow me call failed because he was terrified that he was going to be arrested and killed like Jesus. Please see what happened. Jesus tells him, follow me. And by the way, this time, I don't want you to worry about whether or not it's going to happen. If you follow me this time, you are absolutely going to be arrested and killed just like I was. And this fisherman, who is heartbroken, sees the risen Christ and he picks up his call again. A guy, Peter, who was originally afraid at the possibility he might suffer, now takes up his call again, defiant in the absolute certainty he will. Jesus asked for everything back from Peter. Peter wasn't perfect, but he became a shepherd. He followed. He put feet to his faith, despite all of his mistakes and despite all the problems, and despite the fact that he was going to make mistakes in the future. N.T. Wright talks about the fact that, that Jesus asks so much for Peter. They said no one could ask for more, but Jesus never asks for less. He always says, take up your cross and follow me. It is a worthy call. Follow me, despite whatever it might cost. Today, there's a few of you who might be like me in this place who realize exactly how broken you really are. And maybe you've heard just a few times that you were just too broken. Couldn't be redeemed. Not usable. Not coachable. Some of you may have had it said about people that you care about. Sons and daughters, family and friends at school, people who you care deeply about who others have written off. It's even possible that we have said it about others. That we have said that we certainly can't see a value in the disloyal, the abusive. What about those surreptitiously violent people who, because of broken theology and ideologies, have become terrorists and do nothing but cause hate and pain? Those who have lost their minds and lost their faith and wandered off. There are categories of people that we have written off and saying they're just too far gone. There are people who judge churches like that. There are people who might try and judge this church and say, well, you know, they need a pastor, they need a youth minister, they need a children's minister. Gosh, maybe we better go down the road and do something else. There are people in here who might look at it and go, you know, it'd be work to stick in and to do something here. There are those who have written off the church completely, the big C capital church, and said, look, there's too much scandal and there's too much work. There's too much hypocrisy. There's too much problems. We, they simply cannot be redeemed. Too far gone, too broken. That's not the story after Easter. It's a Cinderella story, and we aren't done yet. There is not a chance, not an iota of possibility in this world that you are simply too far gone. There is no way that you've met somebody who is irredeemable. It isn't that way. The wrecking ball isn't coming. No one is condemned. We celebrate Easter, the ultimate demo day. If there is any one thing that would tear us down, it would certainly be death. And that doesn't have the last say anymore either. We aren't done yet. The risen Christ is the one who restores, and Easter changes everything. 
He takes the broken down, the failed, the once conceited who have been given their just desserts, and he makes them whole. He takes us from where we were to where we're meant to be. He sees what others don't. And in his new neighborhood, his kingdom, it's full of fixer-uppers. In this world, we need people who are dedicated to the fixer-uppers. We need people who see past what others do. I've got good news for you. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, (laughs) that's you. You and I are those people. We, the church, are his hands and feet, and we are called to find them. Today, you can go out the foyer, and you're going to have trouble getting by without people waiting with bated breath, hoping and praying that somebody will realize that they have been called where they are, that they were bought with the price not to be a piece of property that just sits back in the neighborhood, but one that was repurposed with a vision and a mindset for others, that was saved and given a foundation that is solid as a rock so that it could go out and find others who haven't found it yet. Don't have to worry about yourself, just worry about them. There are going to be people standing out there just hoping and praying that you and I will wake up to that. Millions of places. We don't need anyone standing on stage to tell us this. You know this is true. You are called by God, the end, period, to be salt and light wherever you go. So today in this place, may we be that. May we remember that we were fixer-uppers. And may we be people who go find those who are. If in this place you don't know that you are loved by God, you think you are too far gone, you come find me today. I'm going to tell you exactly how wrong you are and show you somebody who doesn't believe that about you, who hands you keys to the kingdom and says, come on, I want you just as you are. Let's pray. Great God, we come today asking that you would be in our presence and in our midst, that today in this place as we worship, God, as we pray, God, that you would move and revitalize our hearts for you, that people would see salt and light when they see us. They would see Christ. They would see your work in us and that they would see hope for their futures. We ask this in your name, Christ Jesus. Amen.